from the host that brought you to Coding Westworld. And Westworld the Recapables. Comes the Ringer Prestige TV podcast on Westworld. I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm Danny Heifetz. And I'm David Shoemaker. Welcome to Westworld Season 4 and the Prestige TV Podcast feed, where we're going to break down every episode of Westworld Season 4. Every Monday, the day after the show comes out on the Prestige TV Podcast feed. Wherever you get your podcasts, but get them on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, it is Thursday, July 21st. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably heard this term, the metaverse. I mean, it was on the cover of Time Magazine this week. It's coined in 1992 in a novel called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. And it's basically a virtual world that touched every aspect of humanity. It was visualized in a way in the book and then the Steven Spielberg movie Ready Player One. Maybe you've seen Mark Zuckerberg talking about it. Maybe you've also heard it called Web3 or the next incarnation of the internet or the 3D web. Whatever it's called, it's basically an immersive version of the internet where people will congregate, do things, spend time, interact, live their lives virtually. It's not that different from a video game. Maybe your kid plays Roblox or Minecraft. Maybe you would host a family reunion there or visit your doctor or even go to college someday. You can shop and express yourself like on a 3D version of Facebook. I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg would love that. Or you can consume your favorite entertainment, concerts, theme parks, movies, TV shows, YouTube, TikTok videos. That last part is what we are talking about today. The metaverse is 100% going to impact how entertainment is made and consumed, in my opinion. And the big entertainment companies are already looking forward to it with anxiety and ambition. And if you talk to people at these studios, especially places like Disney and Netflix, they already have teams working on the application of content to the metaverse. On this subject, Matthew Ball is pretty much the expert. He wrote a book about the metaverse, and he's been writing essays on the subject for years. He's one of the great thinkers at the intersection of entertainment and technology and was the former head of strategy for Amazon Studios. There's a lot of people that think the metaverse is bullshit, that it won't actually be what people think it will be. But it's pretty clear that something interesting is coming, and we don't quite know what it looks like or how people will interact with it. And Matthew Ball has perhaps the best perspective on what this is going to be. So that's why I had him in. We're going to talk to him today about the metaverse and how content and specifically entertainment will interact with the metaverse. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Matthew Ball. He has written a new book called The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. I've read it. It's fantastic. Congratulations, Matt. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. So 
We're going to focus today on how all of this is going to impact the content and entertainment worlds. And there was an interesting sentence in your book that stood out to me where you said, you know, in the metaverse, film and TV will not go away, but we can expect rich interconnection between film and interactive experiences. What do you mean by that? Well, so first of all, let's take a look at the arc of all intellectual property, especially over the last 20 years. We've had increases in the frequency and volume of input. We're going into more media categories. The idea that Halo would be anything more than a video game was crazy 20 years ago. It's common now. And we're starting to see interconnection across those experiences. Obviously, Marvel and Star Wars did that from TV and film. But we've actually seen beyond that. Now, this was not well executed, but Parts of the narrative in Rise of Skywalker occurred exclusively in the Fortnite ecosystem. It's canonical with the J.J. Abrams event that they had. We've seen... Like story points? Yeah. Interesting. I didn't even know that. So if you recall, and now this has become a point of derision among fans, there's this point as to this famous line, somehow Palpatine returned. And the opening scroll in Rise of Skywalker is something like a crack was heard across the universe. And that's to reflect the return of Palpatine. That context, that crack or cry, happened in a promotional event inside of Fortnite. This idea of saying, what exists where? How does the audience interact with a story in between episodes? What parts of the story exist where? That's already being pioneered. But isn't that promotion... You know, like you talk about, we saw this with Minions. You know, Minions got a boost from the promotion on TikTok that happened to turn into this viral Gentle Minions movement. How does this take the leap from promotion to actual storytelling and compelling content that people go just for that? Well, so let's separate really three different things. One is promotion. The second is compelling content. That can be adjacent, non-canonical a good experience in and of its own right. And then third, part of the storytelling experience. First and foremost, when you see virtual production investment, you now have virtual props and assets which can be easily repurposed into any of those three areas. What you do promotionally is limited by the business case of that experience. If you've built Endor in Star Wars in virtual assets, you can now release that into a promotional event leveraging tens of millions of CGI that you could otherwise never do. We're used to commercials having a pretty mediocre version of Superman appear. The second is that you can repurpose it for engaging content in and of itself. Right now, you can use Zwift, a sort of 3D Peloton, or your Peloton to play a 3D game. I don't know about you, but I would rather bike Hoth than I would a Simulacra Stadium. And so that can be compelling content in and of its own right. But the third is when we actually see this as optional canonical content. You don't need to watch every Marvel series to watch the MCU, but some like to, and it can be additive. And so we'll see games and interactive experiences take on that role. So you said to me, we we talked in October, and you said the challenge here is how you tell a story in a bi-directional environment, and that is going to be king. 
So is what you're talking about here with all the additive stuff, like walking around indoor tattooing, is that the bi-directional storytelling that we can all expect to experience as avatars within this digital environment? That's part of it. But bi-directional is really about giving agency and input to the user. This is a complicated idea, but I think it gets to the distinction you were making, which is if Disney puts out an adjacent experience, but nothing that the two mats here do matters, then that's kind of disempowering. That's not too directional. There's a weirdness in a game, which is saying, let's produce an experience that we want to be interactive, but where the interaction has no consequence. And so the big question here is, how do you have what the players are doing have some representation in the canon at large? That's a challenge. Yeah. So what you, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond video games is what you're saying. Right. So every company seems to have their toe in this water at this point. I mean, not just the tech companies. We know what Meta is doing. We know what Apple and Amazon, we don't know exactly, but we know that they are paying attention to this world. I'm curious your impression of what the content companies are doing, what the traditional Hollywood companies are doing to prepare themselves for this shift from the mobile web to the metaverse and what the opportunities and challenges might be for each of those, for those companies. It really depends on the assets that they have, but also the hands that they were dealt. I'll give a good example. We know that when Jason Kyler came back to Warner Media, there was a different perspective on the retention of gaming assets that had currently been put up for sale. They started doing tests where they would work with Google Stadia. This was Google's cloud game streaming service to white label their tech so that anyone could play via video stream their incredibly successful and critically adored Batman series. If you're playing it from a video file with no console, there's no reason why that can't be streamed into the HBO Max app. And if you take a look at Zaz's perspective, he's saying everything goes through this platform. And so you see the capabilities unique to Warner of gaming, critically, financially, and with audiences adore titles that could be part of their experience. And so we have the capability, but then we take a look at more recent rumors that they're back on the chopping block. The debt load is clearly requiring changes there. And so we may see a company that's closer to bringing everything together than anyone else, but can't execute on it. Disney, of course, lacks gaming assets, but is really rich in interactive and game engine experiences. The gaming question at Disney. I mean, we've talked about this. You've written about this. Disney has kind of punted on gaming. The former CEO, Bob Iger, basically said that, you know, this they've tried several times and it wasn't for them. You know, can Disney afford to not be in the gaming business? I mean, you, you said this was Iger's biggest mistake. Disney's got to be in gaming, right? Yeah, so this is where I would be more critical than punted. Punted is we're going to solve it later. <laughs> right. <laughs> what Bob did, and look, it's, it's almost not worth repeating how extraordinary he was as a CEO, but I think the biggest mistake was building a culture that was not optimistic and told never to try again at gaming. That's not a punt. That's a rejection. It's a preemptive rejection of the bright voice that has an idea who says, let's try again. When you go back to the original corporate strategy memorandum that everyone talks about with Walt, the centricity of multiple experiences, the criticality of gaming to audiences today, the role of the theme park 
It's difficult to imagine that Walt would have said, and I know the what would Walt do thing is cheap, but it's hard to imagine he would say, I'm fine licensing it, having someone else operate it, take most of the revenue and profits, and own the nature of its delivery to consumers. That's hard to imagine. The question is, will Bob Chapek, with a different perspective, also to some extent needing to carve a different lane from a pivot that was his predecessors that was launched by one of his competitors and Kevin Mayer recognize that they have they need the opposite perspective not we've tried failed and let's not do it again but we cannot fail and we will keep trying until we achieve success and gaming seems to be the bedrock of the metaverse and everything all the direction that we're going I mean we see Comcast recently went after electronic arts uh, we know that Disney just today they announced the participants in their accelerator program they were metaverse oriented companies you know companies creating tokens and and facilitating virtual interaction I mean it seems like Disney now wants to go this direction do you think they will make a splash and acquire something big in the gaming space? Well, so we should recognize the lineage. We just talked about some of the failures. What is called the HTML of the metaverse, this is a format called USD, was created by Pixar and open sourced. It was created, I think, in 2012, open sourced in 2015. Epic Games, makers of Fortnite and the Unreal Engine, were early participants in the D Disney Accelerator when it was valued at less than a billion. It's now a $32 billion company. They were the first company to really embrace virtual reality production for The Lion King, as well as virtual production for The Mandalorian and others. Their theme park experiences widely deploy the Unreal Engine. The second season of The Mandalorian switched from the Unreal Engine to a proprietary Industrial Light and Magic designed rendering engine. That's really hard. The fact that no one noticed is a testament to how well they pulled it off. And imagine how dangerous that is. Do you think anyone there said, hey, Disney, we made an incredible season one. We're excited to take a bet on this strategic technology bet. I doubt it. And so they have this real tech ability, this interactive ability, which frankly extends to Imagineers and the designs of the parks. Will they make the bet? Look, I think the stock price makes that hard. They're the worst performing Dow company. They're down nearly a half. They're still facing cash constraints. They're trimming the budget in Disney+. Plus. There's skepticism whether they can meet the target that JPEG outlined in December of 2020. But I do think they're trying to figure out what that bold multi-billion dollar, potentially tens of billion dollar bet would look like. And people tend to think of the metaverse in the terms that Mark Zuckerberg and others in the tech world seem to want us to think about, which is the interactivity and the, you know, having your avatar explore worlds and buy things and post political rants about, you know, things that people do on Facebook currently, but in a vir virtual world. I don't think people realize that the practical applicability of this technology is what you're watching in these Star Wars shows, at least right now. I mean, I went down to Playa Vista a couple of years ago with Jon Favreau and saw him making Mandalorian. And it's fascinating. I mean, these, these it is seamless now what they can do with these LED screens and the rendering engines. And it just seems inevitable that this is going to take over the rest of the film business. And you're not going to need to go to Morocco 
or Tunisia to shoot these scenes anymore. You're going to do it in Manhattan Beach or Playa Vista. That's quite right. I think one of the ways to frame it is to compare what's really expensive and really easy in video versus gaming. What's the easiest thing that you can film? It's two people talking in a room. What's the hardest thing to film? It's a battle scene in New York City. Gaming is the reverse. It's pretty easy to make a model of a city street and to have pretty complex graphics of fighting and cars blowing up. What's brutally hard is to have two people talking in a way that passes the uncanny valley. We're at this intersection where we start to be able to pull off in film and TV at very low cost, very complicated environments with extraordinary customization. That dropping of cost while maintaining quality and flexibility is an extraordinary unlock. One of the things that's so amazing is you use this example of Tunisia. It's not just that you can film Tunisia in Manhattan Beach. It's that someone with $1,000 of equipment can license a sand dune or a Tunisian backdrop as easily as they can do iStock photo. And all of a sudden, what you can make is not just a $150 million TV series that used to cost $500 million. It's that Neil Blomkamp's District 9, a $30 million production that was incredible, can be $5 million and can require one-twentieth of the people and one-hundredth of the cash. That is fascinating. And I think that that is absolutely... I mean, these studios are all looking for ways to change the production process so it doesn't it's not so expensive and you don't have to travel all over the world and if you can do it on these stories like star wars you can do it on anything i think and it's only a matter of time let's talk a little bit about how some other applicabilities of this metaverse technology you talk a little bit in the book about sports and experiencing sports in a different way so i was reading this and thinking so if i'm an nba fan or producer craig is a warriors fan he can he will be able to put on a VR headset and sit courtside in quotes for a Warriors game with all his friends sitting virtually beside him. Maybe, you know, Eddie Q or someone else is near him with his own headset and experience a courtside NBA game virtually. Is that what you're talking about? So that's one. I actually think that that's the least interesting application. What's exciting about this is And here's where we get technical. You have to think about the metaverse as making the real world and 3D objects legible to software. And so my point is, if you have a simulation of a game, it's customizable. The question isn't, does Matt sit on courtside? It's, do you sit on top of the scoreboard? Do you stand in the middle of the court? Do you turn off the opponents. You want to watch a soccer game and just see where Messi is. You want to run alongside Messi. You can do that. If you want to sit John Malkovich style inside their head, (laughs) just behind it, you can. If you're upset that Draymond got fouled or missed a shot and you want to pick up in the second minute of the third quarter and finish the match, see if you could do what Steph Curry could not, you can. It's a question of creative expression from information that exists, that's reapplied. And and obviously you will be able to do via this headset or whatever, uh, online wagers and fantasy 
purchases and and sells and you know you can buy nfts and all the things that amplify the sports experience i assume will all be rendered live into the experience that you are watching in your own specified way during a live game totally and what makes us so fun is we know that let's use basketball as an example there's about a four percentage point difference between home and away win rates hugely significant on the margin And yet, if we know that fandom matters a lot, and part of this is referees, of course, you watching at home, you don't exist. You're of no consequence. Whether you cheer or not, whether you're watching or not, is not felt to anyone except a buddy should they be in the living room. And so these questions of how do we at minimum augment tribalism of people in their homes by themselves is a big aspect here. We already know that online wagering and Twitter conversation is pretty powerful. But then there's another question. This is not a new idea, but it's different when you have 3D live interactable simulations of saying, okay, now it's not about uniting the people at home. It's about bringing the people at home into the stadium. So you get into, uh, in the book, the dangers of this technology. And you, you really talk a lot about the benefits of the fact that the internet, internet 1.0, and then the mobile internet, they were not owned by anyone. They were purposefully designed for any company to, you know, do whatever, do what they wanted to do on the platform. And yet we have a race, so to speak, right now among different companies, Facebook, Meta, they are, you know, one of the leaders here to own this platform, to be the dominant force. And what, what was the memo Zuckerberg said? It's ours to lose. I mean, what is the danger here of one company, whether it's Apple or Facebook or another, being the gatekeeper of this technology? Well, so in 2016, Tim Sweeney, then essentially unknown. He's the head of Epic Games now. Right. Always has been. Founder and CEO since the mm-hmm. early 90s. He said Should any one company or individual gain control of the metaverse, they will be more powerful than any state or corporation on earth. They will be like a god. Now, we can find that hyperbolic. It's funny that last year in the court opinion against their lawsuit with Apple, the court found in its uh, filing his perspectives to be sincere. And so, again, we can find it uh, hyperbolic, but courts agreed that he believes this. And he was saying it before anyone was paying attention to the theme, frankly, myself included. And so if we're talking about a parallel plane of existence, the people who run the physics and virtual atoms of it are going to be more powerful than the dominant providers that we see today. And we already think they are powerful. This is why the conquest against Apple, which you see with Tinder, Match, Spotify, and Epic, is so consequential. Let me give you an example that relates to most of the audience here. In 2018, Netflix left the App Store, and we found out why. They found out that while it was helpful for customer acquisition, right, easier to sign up, it wasn't worth the 15 to 30% that they had to pay of their ARPU to Apple. And they resisted for two and a half years, despite bilateral discussions about how they could negotiate that down. Reed Hastings made a judgment. I'd rather have fewer customers and much higher ARPU. In the end of 2021, Netflix silently returned to the App Store. Why? Because they launched their games platform. And there was no way to be compliant if you had interactivity. And so if the entire future is going interactive, then the entire future runs on and is managed by, built by, passported, customs controlled 
by the platforms that are dominant today, the hardware providers. And so if you think that it's hard now, that Netflix has to buckle just because their corporate strategy has expanded, they actually have to pay a tax on their legacy, non-interactive business. Imagine what happens when we're talking about the 3D world at large. And the cynical read on this is that Zuckerberg sees this, is really upset that he has to bow down to Apple and he can't do what he wants. And he sees this as a way around Apple where he could own the pipe, so to speak, or the platform and not have to deal with the Apple tax. That's the cynical read. I think when you take a look at the acquisition of Oculus, that was in 2014. This was long before Apple became a problematic partner for many tech companies, partly because the technology that they now limit didn't really exist. Of all of the big tech companies, Facebook has been more adversely affected by their lack of platform than anyone else. They tried to launch a cloud gaming service, not allowed on iOS effectively. They tried to launch their creator tipping platform, but that doesn't work if Apple takes 30% and then you want to take 10, 20, or 30. It leaves less than half to the creator. They have tried to build their advertising business and then found that a single policy shift sucks 10 billion out of profits. And so I think there's a cynical perspective saying, let's get out from under their thumb. But the move started a decade ago, and they're also uniquely aware of the challenges and the ways in which their business, which is rightly criticized for being solely reliant on advertising, has been unable to evolve from that because of what they're not allowed to do. Call me cynical on Facebook. I'm probably more cynical than you, but it just seems like this is there. They know that the next generation of this stuff is going to be a free-for-all. They want to be the dominant player, and they have the scale right now to, to at least try. Oh, I agree with you there. I just mean irrespective, there's, there have been learnings there. At right. the end of the day, they have tens of billions per year in cash flow. They've got a multi-year head start. They have a founder in control and convicted, and they have billions of user accounts, billions of daily users. You should take a swing at what you believe is a multi-trillion dollar opportunity, and you should try to own as much of it as you can. Right. All right, we're going to do a lightning round here. Does Marvel have a quality problem? For sure. How so? Well, I mean, first and foremost, the cinema scores are evident of that. They've made 29 films. The first 25 had only one B+. Everything else was A- minus or better. They went a string of 18 films that were A- minus or better. Of the past four films, three were Bs. Does it matter, though? Of course it does. Uh, I mean, look, we know the correlation between cinema score and box office legs. We know that cinema scores are skewed towards people who should like your product. If you went to Eternals in the first 36 hours during the Delta and then early Omicron wave, and you felt that it severely missed your expectations, that's as self-selected an audience as you can get. We can see from Samba, from Parrot Analytics and others that viewership and engagement with the MCU TV series is going down. And I think we've seen a few of these titles that are falling short of expectations. China's a problem, certainly, but most people would have bet that Doctor Strange 2 would have crossed a billion. Most people would have bet that Thor 4 would cross a billion. The first one won't. The second one seems unlikely to do so. And Eternals was the biggest mess of the now 15-year run. Right. All right. Did Disney do irreparable harm to the Pixar brand by sending three movies in a row directly to Disney Plus? 
irreparable harm if you say that for the foreseeable future, there is an inexorable drop in the performance of any theatrical film. Yes. Can they repair it beyond that? Potentially. But there's no getting back, you know, the tens of millions of dollars that Lightyear might have gotten if audiences hadn't been trained that it's Disney Plus content first. Right. HBO is returning to Amazon's channel store after the former CEO, Jason Kylar gave up 5 million subs to remove it. Smart move? I'd have to know what the term differential looks like. There's been enough reporting to say that they're going to get a lot more data and probably better financial terms than before. And then, of course, there's the debt service thing. No one wants to be intermediated, but it's a reality of whether or not you can afford to be. The power of TikTok, underrated or overrated? I think in the Minions case, as an example, it was probably overrated. Most of this happened. The performance of Minions 2 is basically in line with Minions 1. And in that case, I think it's probably overrated. But look, Heat Waves is still on the top 10 on Spotify. It can't leave. There's nothing more powerful when it comes to music right now and increasingly TV. What's the actual total addressable market for Netflix? Total addressable market being how many people could you plausibly sell? Look, I don't think a billion is crazy. Why? Because we've got about 750, 800 million ex-China pay TV homes. That number goes up 20 to 30 to 50 per year. There's five and a half billion people who watch two and a half to five hours of TV per day. That is an addressable market. What's the realizable market? Without sports, without live, without deep, deep cultural ties in some markets like India, you're probably looking at less than 500, and that's execution dependent. Related question. The Netflix password sharing crackdown. Bad move or about time? About time. Yeah, I agree. All right. Another Netflix question. Theme parks for Netflix. Will it happen? Not in any practical timeline. Maybe metaverse theme parks. I think everyone's focused on that. Look, the interesting thing about theme parks is they take a decade to build out. They take 10 billion or more. The permitting process makes it very hard to get good real estate. And at the end of the day, the number of customers you can reach compared to the TAM we're discussing today, the math doesn't work. When Disney was a mostly U.S. business and you build in Florida and California, so chosen because of the climate, made sense. But spending a decade, 15 billion, to have a relatively remote park that is accessible only to the wealthy who are geographically proximate, not practical. Digital theme parks are compelling because they're open year-round, available to everyone, have no marginal cost, operate much faster and cost less. Who should buy stars when it gets spun off from Lionsgate? It's really a price question, but... I think there's a reason it hasn't sold for years and ended up with Lionsgate the first time. I, it's not clear what needle it moves relative to the price tag you would need to pay. Why did you thank the Minions creator, Chris Melodondri, in your book? <laughs> I've known Chris for years. I think he's an extraordinary <laughs> uh, visionary when it comes to a sense of play and has all, always been a personal supporter, encourager mm. as well. Interesting. All right, last question. The Stranger Things cinematic universe, will it happen? Will it happen? Yes. If we're saying will it will happen? Will it be meaningful, though? Will it be meaningful? Or is this a one-off? Is, is, is Stranger Things this generation's Star Wars? Oh, it's certainly not that. But 
look, I would say that Stranger Things seasons two, three, and four copy and paste of seasons one. And yet the demand for it continues to rise. We know that Stranger Things season four is basically the most successful thing we've ever seen in streaming by total hours watched. Will it continue to be popular? Absolutely. Will it be meaningful for Netflix? Absolutely. Will it be something that is culturally significant over the decades as opposed to just important? That one's harder to see. But of course, no one would have bet that on most of these franchises. The Witcher, not intuitive. Star Wars, not intuitive. Right. Uh, All right. That is it. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Matthew Ball, author of The Metaverse and how it will revolutionize everything. All right, we are back with the call sheet, my daily prediction. Craig, are you going to see Nope? <laughs> nope. Too scary. Nope. Nope to Nope. Too scary. I, yeah. I, I can't really do like intense horror films. Yeah, not for me either, but it's going to be pretty big this weekend. Most of the tracking services have it at about a 50 million opening weekend. Uh, this is down from what Us opened to, which was Jordan Peele's last movie. Us opened to 71 million. But Get Out, his big debut film, opened to 33 million. So 50 is kind of right in the middle. This one's different. This one is bigger. The budget on this one is almost 70 million. The budget on us was like 20 million. The budget on Get Out was like nothing. What <laughs> basically is, is that because Daniel Kaluuya is much more famous now and you gotta pay all these people or what? Sure. And Jordan Field and Jordan Peele is much more famous. I mean, he's got a, a I don't know what his deal is, but it's got to be gigantic. I mean, the first two movies, it's interesting. They got they had different paths to get there, but they both grossed exactly 275 million worldwide, mm. which for low budget horror movies is fantastic. This one, I think they want higher grosses because it costs more and it's got aliens, it's a little bit broader in terms of the potential appeal, but We'll see. The, the reviews are good. They're not fantastic. Both us and Get Out were in the 90s. This one's in the 80s. So we'll see how it does. Uh, I'm going to take the over, actually. I'm gonna, I am gonna. think it'll do a little bit better than 50 million, uh, mostly because there's not much else out there and the Jordan Peele brand is really strong right now. So we'll see, but I, I'm, I'm bullish on this one. I agree with you. There's nothing really competing with it. People love Jordan Peele and his movies, and I, I agree that there is like a there's a floor to his movies uh, from an audience perspective. Like a certain amount of people will see them. Yeah, and horror opens, meaning the the multiples on horror aren't as big because people tend to flock opening weekend and then they level out and don't necessarily get the same multiple from the opening weekend as some other types of films. So we'll see how it ultimately does. It would be hilarious if all of his movies got to the exact same number, 275, which is so random. Uh, but Kaluuya is a bigger star now. It's got Kiki Palmer, Stephen Yoon's in it. And uh, it's a, it's intriguing. They've also been marketing the hell out of this. There was a Super Bowl spot. There was, you know, a, they did a poster reveal a year ago. Like, they've, they've treated this like a big blockbuster. It's a good trailer, too. They do a good job. It looks scary. Yeah, it looks good. The universal marketing machine is pretty damn good. All right. Uh, that is the show for today. I'd like to thank Matthew Ball. I'd like to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. And I'd like to thank you. We will see you next week. 